and welcome to the Channel V6 podcast. I'm your host, David Gale. The Channel V6 podcast covers all the unique and diverse topics that matter most to you, you and a Basin resident. You can subscribe to listen to in-depth conversations about local issues that affect us all. Today's guest is Jordan Mathis, the health officer and director of Tri-County Health Department. We're going to get to introducing him here in a second. But first, we've got to tell you about our sponsors because we would not be able to do these podcasts without our great sponsors. Our first of which, our primary sponsor today, uh, Larson Haslam Dental. At Larson Haslam Dental, their amazing team is dedicated to not only improving your oral health, but to also restore and maintain your overall health. Are you unhappy with your dental insurance or maybe you don't have dental insurance at all? Larson Haslam Dental has the solution. It's the Larson Haslam savings plan. You can call to discuss the details and see how much you can save with this great plan. Larson Haslam Dental has the most state-of-the-art equipment in our area, providing you and your entire family with all your dental needs. They offer implants, implant-supported dentures, root canals, same-day crowns, and a laser that treats small decay spots and children without getting numb. No shots. Larson Haslam Dental is a comprehensive dental office that's happy to treat your whole family from young to old. They also have the most fun and best staff around. You can call now and mention you heard the ad on Channel V6 podcast, and they'll schedule a free consultation to see if the Larson Haslam Savings Plan is a good fit for you. You can call 781-2729 or go online at larsonhaslamdental.com. All right, bringing into the studio Mr. Jordan Mathis with the Tri-County Health Department. Um, Obviously, today uh, we're going to be talking about probably one of the most controversial topics in America right now. There's a couple really hot-button issues. This one has been for the last uh, 11 months, nine nine months, depending on when (laughs) when you started following all things COVID. Um, Of course... Our point here is to get the latest information, to um, have a little uh, back and forth talking about how COVID is uh, affecting the Uinta Basin, about mandates from the state, uh, and about the the future, uh, both near and far and what's going to be happening. So um, we're going to try to focus on local health care and, of course, state mandates. Um, So what I'd like to do is is, uh, have you introduce yourself. Uh, for those who don't know Mr. Mathis and what your role is here uh, in the Tri-County area. And then um, I've got some numbers, and I'll ask you some numbers, and then uh, we'll go from there. All right. Jordan Mathis, Director of Tri-County Health Department. I just oversee the whole health department. I'm the health officer. Um, Work with the staff there to try to protect and preserve health for everyone in the Uinta Basin. Our mission is to serve for health. We're we really focus on making sure that we're serving the public and that whatever we're doing is um, improving the health of, of our community. Um, and I'm just going to give a plug for public health in general. Um, the reality is that public health provides a baseline foundation for society as we know it right now. Um, the countries that don't have a good public health system they're not able to um, do the things that we do. And and COVID's kind of amplified that in a way in the fact that when you're worried about a communicable disease, it changes your mindset, changes your behavior. Um, when you're worried that you don't know where to get the clean water and things like that, those things still exist in the world. We call them third world countries. Mm-hmm. And you're not able to focus on innovation and improving other parts of your life, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're focused on some basic things. And, right. and so public health is an important aspect of, of our society and really was a catalyst to the industrial revolution as public health became more of, of an emphasis. It allowed that, that industrial revolution to really take off. Mm-hmm. If you look back at history. Um, so it's an important part of it. Um, usually, we at the public health department like to stay quiet because if, if you don't hear about us, everything's good, right? Right, right. Um, and uh, this last year hasn't been that way. People heard plenty about us. And, and so, anyhow, that's that's who I am and, and what we do. And so not being an elected official, but having some sort of 
not necessarily control, well, maybe the control of information. Um, who, who's your boss? How does how does the public health system work uh, statewide and then nationally? So let's start at the local level. Um, so I am not an elected official, but I am an appointed official, mm-hmm. and I'm appointed by um, the Board of Health. The Board of Health is made up of of three elected officials, um, a, a commissioner from each of the three counties, okay, and then the commissions in each county appoint the other members of the Board of Health. And anyone can throw their hat in to become a member of the Board of Health uh, when when there's a seat available, and uh, and that's how our Board of Health works, and they provide the governance for for the health department. Um, this position is also my appointment is ratified in each of the three county commission meetings. Okay. So all all nine members of the county commissions had a choice on whether they ratified my appointment by the board. Does that make sense? Yeah. And is the work that the health department does here locally, though its um, its direction is by the commissions of each of the counties? Are they given any direction on a state level? Do you is there any connection between the state and the county levels? Oh yeah. So most of what we do, the reason that that each county has a health department or is part of a health department is by state statute. Okay. You have to have a local health department, um, and then most of what we do is governed by the statute that gives that authority to the counties and to the boards of health. Um, to be able to do that, we regulate state rules um, and mostly mostly state rules is mm-hmm. what we really focus on that that come down. Most of it, the the state statute does give us the authority to write our own regulations where it's needed. Um, but most of our regulations that we enforce are state regulations. And when we find a need, we tweak those regulations to adopt a, a local regulation that might better suit our need here locally. Um, we just did that in a local Board of Health meeting just this week. Okay. So um, making a tweak, and, and a lot of our tweaks are really focused on how do we make it easier for people to do what they need to do but not compromise public health. Gotcha. Uh, the one-size-fits-all doesn't always work. And so that's how that works. I We do get a lot of uh, about a third of our budget comes through state or federal pass-through dollars, uh, meaning that that the state receives money from the federal government for public health uh, purposes. They pass it on to this to us through a contract, and we we perform that work on a local level. Okay, and and if there's federal money that's flowing this direction as well, is there a similar relationship between? Uh, the state regulations and what the federal government has in the form of health regulations? We don't get a, into a lot of regulating of of federal, any sort of federal regulations. Um, those would be, be primarily left. A lot of the ones that I think about here locally mm-hmm. um, have to do with the, the environment and that has to do directly with DEQ, Utah okay. DEQ, or the EPA. Um, so we don't get a lot involved in a lot of federal regulations, but the money that we do receive is tied to stipulations of what we will do on a local level. Um, but many of that is program-related and not um, uh, not necessarily um, enforcement-related. Does okay. that make sense? I think so. I'm I'm just trying to I'm trying to paint the picture here to understand that most of what happens on a local level is driven by um, state regulations, which every, each state then would have their their own entire way of of dealing with public health, not necessarily being directed by the federal government. Um, that would most of that would then would just happen on state level. You in turn um, help to to enforce regulate those regulations here on a local level. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty fair. Okay. Uh, then let's let, let, let me give you some numbers that I have um, about the coronavirus, about COVID um, on a national level, and, and then we, maybe you can give me some numbers that you have for a state and local level. Um, according to the White House Coronavirus Task Force, uh, at least this week, the national numbers right now compared to May 
um, have increased quite a bit. Um, right after Memorial Day, about May 25th, there was less than 25,000 new cases per day. Now we're at more than 180,000 new cases per day. The COVID inpatients at that time, again, May 25th, fewer than 30,000. Now we're more than 90,000. And then deaths in our country have uh, more than doubled. We're approaching about 300,000 U.S. deaths total, about 1.5 million globally. Um, And again, Wednesday of this past week, that was December 2nd, was the first time that we surpassed 3,000 deaths in one day in the United States. Um, and, And I'll ask you some questions about how we get to these numbers in a second. But as we take, um, you know, there was a a, a real big worry that um, our first wave of the coronavirus um, wasn't, people weren't going to understand how contagious this was and the effect it was going to have. So that by the time the second wave come around, we were going to see a much larger spike across the nation. It appears to me that that's what's happening or what has happened. Um, how do these numbers uh, get parsed down to our state and uh, locally? Um, well, where was that? So for our area, I'll give you real quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at for the last 14 days. So okay. we're looking at a two-week period. Daggett County has had a total of nine cases. Duchesne County's had a total of 154 cases. And Uinta County has seen um, 315 cases. Those have all but Daggett County's numbers have actually, Uinta and Duchesne County have been on a slight decline when I look at them from day to day on the 14-day. Um, so our, our daily incidence is in a plateau or a, a decline right now locally. Just based off of the last 14 days. Yeah, the state, on the other hand, went through the same pattern, which was going into a plateau to a decline, and now is going back into, seems to be, and, and this is off of some data where we look at a three-day trajectory. It appears that the state's going into an incline, so that it's going back up a little bit. Okay. Um, maybe some of that, whether, whether some of that's due to the impacts of Thanksgiving, um, both with regards to testing pretty much shut down for at least a day in the state, mm-hmm. um, or whether it's with regards to activities that happen around Thanksgiving, will yet to be seen. Um, so, but with regards to to deaths, the, the one important thing to note with regards to deaths, our, our case mortality rate, and, and what we need to understand is case mortality is the total number of deaths in a ratio compared to the total number of cases, right? Okay. So we're at a 0.7% case mortality rate for our jurisdiction. Now, case mortality rate is different than infection mortality rate, which is the total number of people have infected. Not everyone who's infected gets tested, right? So was there some sort of um, statistical guess that we're making about the number of people who actually have it versus those who have been tested? Yeah, so there's there's things that are probably way above my pay grade as far as <laughs> figuring out um, the infection mortality. And you're never going to be able to figure that out until probably a year, years past okay. when, when this whole thing takes place. But they'd use the same thing that we try to do with, with uh, flu because we only track uh, hospitalized cases of influenza. We don't track every single influenza case. Um, and so they they do have a way to try to, to figure out what the infection mortality is um, for for influenza because we don't track every single case. So it, it'd be a similar similar way for them to do that. But with regards to to the deaths, I do want to speak to that. And this isn't really good for for a podcast, but this is, this right here is, uh, this is the spike you're seeing nationally, right? Okay. I don't know if you guys can see that, but it's going up drastically. We, we can describe over a period of, what period of time is that? This is the, the whole pandemic. Okay. So, so we, we've got ourselves a, an increase and then we have a bump that happens at what point in time? What's that first that, bump? That was after, this is the increase at the beginning, 
early spring. Okay. And then this was after Memorial Day, right, into the summer when we saw it around the 4th of July. And then it dipped again late summer okay. into the fall. And then in October, it just took off. Right? And, it, and it looks to me, just based off of this, that we're about three times what we were in the first wave uh, around Memorial Day then? Yeah, so you're looking at uh, approaching 80,000 um, and yeah, we're, we're at like 200,000 cases and, and per day. This is, this is cases. Um, and that, and that's based off of actual confirmed tests. Yes. Okay. Yep. And, and we call that the, the case mortality rate versus the, uh, infection mortality rate, but so, that's not the mortality rate. That's just, this is cases, just cases. Yep. So this is confirmed cases. Okay. This next one is the same thing, right? But this is with regards to mortality. This is death. Okay. So early on, you saw that spike that that took place. That was, and that's spring. Yep, that was early spring. Looking at three thousand cases, um, potentially in a day. Okay. And then it really just kind of dropped off beginning in May, and just kind of kept a steady course. And it's going up slightly, but it's not going up to the same level that you see here. Why, and why do you think that is? If if we're if we've got three times the cases, but our mortality rate looks pretty even across the board, ish. What what gives? I I think it's it's obviously learning. Um, healthcare, the healthcare system was not prepared back in early spring for for what they were okay what, what they were facing. So now there's increased understanding of not only treatment. Um, but now there's increased understanding with regards to transmission and things like that. And there's increased use across the board of things like masks uh, that are, are meant to, to mitigate it. Um, I think everyone who lives in the Uinta Basin knows I've been a proponent of masks. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a couple different reasons is there seems to be really strong evidence that it slows transmission. Um, there also seems to be some evidence that when transmission does occur, the severity of the disease due to the decrease in viral load um, goes down and death comes with severe disease. So if you can decrease the severity of the disease, you could potentially decrease mortality. So explain how that works. You're saying that wearing masks decreases the severity. How How is that... I guess, what, what's the science behind that? The basic thought is if I'm infected, I'm wearing a mask, and I'm breathing out virus, uh, what it does is if I'm wearing a mask, then you may still get some of the virus, uh, but it's going to be in a decreased load. Therefore, the infection will be less severe. Right? Okay. So viral load, and they've seen this in animals, um, and so the theory is the, the more virus that's injected into animals in, in tests, um, the more severe disease, the higher the mortality rate. In, in all reality, all we are is animals, Dave. <laughs> that, um, that, that is true. <laughs> so so the, the same idea comes across is if you get more virus, you're going to have more severe disease. The, the higher probability that, that there could be death is associated with that disease. So that's the general thought. And me wearing a mask will decrease that because it won't get as much, you won't get as much virus. And then the other thought is if we're both wearing masks, then that even increase, decreases that risk even more. It's not saying that infection can't take place. Sure. And I've never said that if you wear a mask, you're not going to get infected. Right. But it decreases that and severity goes down. And we also know how to treat the disease better. This is, this is a really interesting concept because as I think about the spread of a virus, you know, it's on a microscopic level. And the idea that having a little more of something that's microscopic may have a much bigger effect on you, uh, I, I suppose I, I've, I've never heard that um, articulated in a really strong way that, that, that's at least stuck in my brain. And, and I'm, I'm the everyman in this situation, I guess. Um, but, but that's what you're saying. You're saying if I have, if I sneeze and a bunch of virus comes out and you, you get that full sneeze, you're going to have a, a much, uh, 
larger possibility of your reaction to that being more severe than if I sneezed in a mask and only a little bit of that sneeze got to you. Yeah. All right. I that I, I buy it. That that's the idea. Um, and that's the theory. And the there actually there's there's uh, researchers who are really working to test that theory. But they've like I said they've seen that empirically in animals as they've um, injected them with different diseases. That 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 same theory holds true in a controlled environment. Yeah. And so you you inject a rat with with a a virus and you inject the same rat with a little less of the virus. This one does better than this one. Okay. So. It, so that, maybe that's one of the reasons why our death rate is low is because people have been better at the social distancing, at the masks, and our virus loads may be lower. And like you said as well, we know how to treat it better. And, and that's an interesting one as well. And it's, I'm going to kind of veer away from my notes for a second. Um, the treatment of COVID, because there hasn't been a vaccine, and there's been a lot out there as far as what works and what doesn't, and there's been both conspiracy theories and uh, competing studies that it's it's hard to know what's right and what's wrong out there but from from your understanding what have we learned what what kind of treatment without a vaccine has there been uh, really i i don't know a whole lot about this i'm not a medical doctor right. so i don't treat people sure um but uh the delay of intubating people and looking at other methods. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it, but proning, putting people on their stomach rather than their back allows them to be able to breathe a little bit better. Okay. Um, and so there's some things with regards to the treatment that doesn't doesn't just say, once you get hospitalized, you're, you're moving to, uh, you know, being on an intubator. Right. So those are, those are some of the things um, that I think the medical community has figured out in their realm of being able to do that um, at a higher level and treat people better. That doesn't mean that we're not seeing increases in hospitalizations. In, in, in our own community, we're seeing increases in hospitalizations. But the good news on the hospitalizations, we are seeing increases in those. But the time that the individuals stay in the hospital is going down. Um, and as you can see, once again, this is not a great. That's all right. But, we can we can describe it here. You got the, you got the, another graph. Whoa. But the pink, the pink is our ICU, and we are seeing increases in ICU. We're also seeing increases in the blue, which is non-ICU hospitalizations. But the increases in the blue are quite a bit higher. That means, as you're looking across the growth, um, I I view it as although our ICUs are at 87 percent capacity. Uh, where people are going in and not as many people as early on in the disease are being put into the ICU, which means they're being able to be treated and discharged without going into an intensive care unit. Um, the other the other thing is that, did I mention the time? The time that they're spending in right, the hospital is, is less. So all those things are really good indicators. Um, but it it doesn't mean that with our increasing cases, we are seeing a lot more hospitalizations. And what that means is it it's concerning for a lot of reasons because we need hospitals for a lot of other things other right. than COVID. And when you're seeing this type of growth for both ICU and non-ICU, it it puts a strain on it heaven forbid that your family's in a car crash, right? And right. things like that. It just puts a strain on the system as a whole when you have this level of increase in utilization, both ICU and non-ICU. So those are the concerns with regards to it. Um, so. Okay. Let me, let me take a, uh, just a step back because uh, I was writing some numbers down here and I want to make sure that I've got this right. Um, locally, our case mortality rate is... 0.7%, but that's not the same thing as the infection mortality rate. Do we have any idea what that infection mortality rate? I know you said it not to like a year later that you really understand, but I'm assuming that that percentage is going to be lower because it's not including those people who never got tested. Yeah. Yeah, we're the only way to if you wanted to empirically figure it out is after the case um, give everyone antibody tests and figure out who has who has who had the disease. Right. 
Um, but then you're going to have people who are vaccinated that potentially should have antibodies for it as well. So I don't know how they're going to figure it out. Like I said, that's way above my pay grade. But we know, and and it's reasonable, that we know that there's a lot of people in our community that haven't got tested, um, particularly household contacts. Say, for instance, that I got COVID, and then my wife starts exhibiting symptoms, and then my kids start exhibiting it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a need for for us to test my whole family. I knew that I had COVID, right? Right. So those individuals were infected, but they never get counted in the official count. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few more infections out there. Um, they've, they've estimated anywhere for every positive case, there's anywhere from like 7 to 11 additional. Now, now that's really interesting because that's one of those questions that I keep seeing brought up over and over again, which is, of course, our numbers are going up. It's because we're testing more often. Um, we weren't testing as much before. Now we're testing a lot. And so everybody stopped freaking out. The numbers are, are only going up because we're testing more. And what you're saying is that probably the opposite is what's actually happening here. We, we are testing more, but it's because we have more disease. And that's where the percent positivity, um, that, that, and I can talk about our percent positivity, but the percent positivity is an important aspect because the number of tests that we do, the percent that are coming back positive is, is growing at the same rate or, or growing at a, a rate that that's why those numbers are important. Not just the, the actual number per day, but how many do we test and how many of those came back positive. Early on, we were looking at like a 2%. Now, as far as a positivity rate, meaning only 2% of those who got tested actually came back yeah, with a positive. We were like between 2 and 5%. Right now for Daggett County, we're at 14.3%. Okay. Um, Duchesne County, 21.1%. And Uinta County, 25.5%. So a quarter of people who go get tested are, are testing back. positive. Now, that, that brings up a whole other point, which is, if that's true, that means that 75% of those people were coming in with some sort of symptom that that exhibited COVID-like symptoms but wasn't COVID? Yeah. Yep, exactly. So that means we still have other flus and colds and other things that are just floating around. Yeah. Uh, I think I told you uh, sometime in October... I woke up with a scratchy throat, stayed home for the day, went in the next morning, got tested. I was negative. Still stayed home for the rest of the week because I obviously, you don't ever want to share a cold with anyone, right? Sure. Um, so there are other things going around. That That is the flip side. But we are seeing a growth, the, the percent positivity, what it shows us from early on when we were doing testing is that the, the incidence and the prevalence of the disease in our community is increasing. Um, we've held pretty steady in those 20, that 20 range. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daggett County hasn't had cases for for a long time. So for them to have nine cases, that's why they're seeing an increase in the percent positivity. Now, how effective and reliable are the tests? Well, as effective and reliable as any tests that we have. <laughs> <laughs> right? They're all prone to, to some level of error. Okay. Um, and, and so we've had, we've had cases where there were, were false positives. Um, the only way to rule out a false positive is through additional testing. Mm-hmm. And that's completely up to the individual, the patient, right? Between them and their doctor, one their, they want to go through that. But when individuals have said, I really don't think I have it, um, individuals that were Early on, they were tested for work-related issues. They're like, I really don't think I have it. They were willing to go through that. Um, right. At this point, there's, I to me, if you're positive, there's such a, we have docu- a high-level documented uh, cases that if you test positive, the likelihood, and I'm, I'm really rambling here, but as prevalence goes up in a community, the more accurate the test is. Okay. That, that's just the way it is um, because you know that you'll have less chance of, of error. Okay. So. Let's, uh, you, you know what, I, I want to I switch directions just a little bit, but uh, before I do so, let me, let me read our, our second sponsor for this podcast. 
uh, give some credit to those who are helping us make sure that we can get this information out. We're going to talk about Carl's Carpet for a second. In the Unibasin, Carl's Carpet is the premier installing and uh, flooring, window coverings, and custom organizers. They've been family-owned and operated for over 50 years. For a free estimate, go see them today in Roosevelt or on the web at Carl's with a K, carlscarpet.com. Also, Channel V6 has delivered high school sports, local news, and community events to Basin residents for years. And now, everything is offered on the web. Every, sorry, everything that is offered on the website is also available in the palm of your hand through the new Channel V6 mobile app. You can watch sports and other events live as they happen, or view them on demand at your convenience, all on your mobile device. You can even receive alerts when a live event or breaking news is happening. Don't miss any of the high school basketball season action. Find the Channel V6 mobile app on your app store for iOS or Android today. Okay, um, I'd like to get into um, a little bit more about, about the mortality rate and, and deaths because one of the biggest things that I hear uh, about COVID is that it's highly, highly survivable. I don't know what the rate is. I've seen uh, lots of different versions of 99.99. Um, can you tell me what the the current survival rate is, or the opposite of that, the mortality rate, and um, who is being most affected by the disease in our communities? Yeah, so it many people are surviving. That's that's the fact of the matter as we are seeing a, a lot of people who are surviving, right? Um, but we are also seeing more deaths from a communicable disease than we've ever seen in recent history. So that's concerning. Can you, just... can you give me some examples of other communicable diseases that weren't nearly as devastating? Well, our annual flu isn't nearly as devastating. Um, we've never seen, we, we just, we're reporting uh, 10 deaths. We just had two additional deaths in our community in the last day. Um, and so in my time here, we've never reported 10 deaths from, from influenza. Um, we've never reported the, the type of hospitalizations um, that we were seeing. I went back five years and looked at our hospitalizations for, for influenza um, in 2019, 41, 2018, which was a bad year for us. We had 88, uh, 2017, uh, 77, and then 2016, 36, and 2015, 32 for an average of 54.8 over five years. And we're right at 100 right now. And COVID's nowhere. It, it's not over, obviously. Um, so we are seeing it this disease is clearly impacting those who are older. Mm -hmm. um, I pulled the numbers for Utah and uh, 65 to 84 is the lion's share of the deaths at 463 of the, of the total deaths. And uh, the, the 85 to plus is 236. And you put those two together, that's the majority of the deaths that we're seeing. But the crazy part is if you're 85 or older, your likelihood to die from this thing just goes up drastically. When you look at the, the mortality rate per hundred or per thousand cases in that category in 85 plus, it's 132. Even dropping down to the 65 to 84, it's 32. Oh, wow. So it's, it's quite a, quite an increase in your risk when you're 85 and older. And and I will say for our communities, uh, we have seen the biggest, uh, our, ours trend right along with the state. Our, our last three deaths have been 85 or older. And so protecting the older population is important. And uh, those that are immune compromised, but we have had a death that fell into the 25 to 44 category. Uh, so it's not out of the realm of possibility, mm -hmm. um, but but it is our older population. And and nationally, what I'm hearing with regards to mortality is you're still looking at about um, I, anywhere from two to three deaths uh, per per hundred or something like that. Wait, I'm trying to think. Per thousand. 
I believe it is, per thousand cases. Yeah. Between two to three deaths. Yeah. And that and that puts us at at a percentage of again point I'm not sure what the percentage for that would be. Um and I guess that's pretty close to your point seven percent. So ours were yeah, point seven percent would be seven deaths per thousand. So ours our our rate is probably higher. I went out and figured out all the different jurisdictions and we have one of the higher rates. Um, per case mortality rates in in the state. Okay. And I'm not surprised by that because we usually have a higher case mortality rate for influenza because we have, I'll just be honest, we have worse, worse health outcomes in our communities. We have more individuals with chronic disease. Um, we have more individuals that use tobacco, other things that are complicating factors. So it's not surprising that we have a little bit higher uh, case mortality rate. The only one that's higher than us is Southwest uh, that has an older population. So that's mm-hmm. not necessarily a surprise. And San Juan that uh, saw that devastation that took place on the Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. And so they had a high case mortality rate. And then there's us at 0.7. So those that's kind of kind of where we're at Um but nationally, when you when you spread that over across the whole, whole entire population, I think it's 0. 0.2 or 0. 0.3, so it's about two to three deaths per per thousand cases nationally. Okay. And and I think that that is uh, significantly lower than our initial estimates had uh, back in February and March, oh, yeah. but is still you're saying significantly higher than our next closest. Um, communicable disease. Yeah, so they they estimate the the uh, the annual flu to be about 0.1 percent, right? Okay. Uh, of those that are infected, um, die, and so even at 0.2 or 0.3, you're either double or triple that as far right. as mortality, and that's what we're seeing. You know, we're seeing things that we haven't seen in a while. Like I said, um, at least in my lifetime, really since. 1918, haven't seen things like this. Right, since the Spanish flu. Um, is there any credence to, um, forgive me for asking this, I have, I have heard from people who said that, that there is an incentive for doctors to mark deaths as COVID-related, that there is some sort of monetary uh, incentive that's being given by the government to say, look, if you have a certain, if you have COVID deaths, you get federal funds. Is there any truth to that? I don't know of any truth to it. And anecdotally, I just want to say that I've sat in medical staff meetings with the medical staff here at Ashley Regional, where physicians um, voted to put off elective procedures out of precaution to make sure that there was enough PPE and things like that. Elective procedures are where doctors make money, just so we're clear on that. That's where they make a lot of money mm-hmm. and and where they're well compensated, right? And there was a almost a unanimous vote to say, we might want to consider putting off elective procedures to make sure we're prepared to do this. So if there were some sort of perverse incentive for marking deaths, um, those doctors in the room at least from what I saw, were not aware of it at all. Or if they were, they were not taking the bait. They were trying to do what was best for the patient care of individuals. Um, let's let's talk a little more about the hospitals themselves, because based off of the numbers that you're showing me, you showed, uh, for those who are just listening, you showed a, a graph that had both uh, a pink line and a blue line, and those were going up rather significantly. And one was um, ICU and non-ICU hospitalizations, or, or I guess capacity in our local hospitals for ICU and non-ICU? Those, those were actually just COVID cases. Oh, okay. Um, the capacity is the, the overall uh, COVID cases in ICU, we're looking at 41%, which means ICU is still being filled with other needs, right? Okay. Um, over, almost more than half of them um, are, are individuals that don't have COVID, but that number of COVID related ICUs has gone up. So at, at what point in time 
do we have a problem? Um, I mean, how much longer can we continue to increase like that? Now, I, I know that you're telling me that the the actual numbers of confirmed cases are on a slight de- decline right now. Uh, but that graph shows me that our, our hospitals are still filling up. Um, what's the what's the future for hospitals? At what point in time are we in trouble? Well, um, the hospitals have been saying that that they're overrun for the last little while. Just the the question is, in my mind, is how long can you run at redline? Right? Can you can run your car at redline? for a little bit, but if you're running at a red line for miles and miles and miles, eventually the motor's just going to blow and give. And and I don't know what point that is. I don't run a hospital. Um, I know locally in my conversations with our hospitals, our plan is for them to get on the phone with me and start having conversations at a point where there's a patient that they typically would send out and they can't find a spot for that patient. Hmm. And that that doesn't... That, that could be like an acute car accident right? or that could be a COVID patient. Um, but when they can't start referring, our, our surge capacity um, for the Uinta Basin is the Wasatch Front right. for our hospitals. And if we can't get people out there, if we can't put a person on a plane or a, a helicopter or even an ambulance and get them to a place, then we know that we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And we've had those conversations. Uh, with regards to planning, we send we send the data that we have with regards to hospital capacities across the state three times a week to our local hospitals so that they can kind of see where where capacity is available, so that they can rather than in an emergency they're calling every hospital they can see well this hospital might have some space for this patient whatever it is that they need so we're trying to do our best to make sure that that uh, we're in that communication. But I don't know that I can answer that because I don't run a hospital. Right, right. Well, certainly it's one of the one of the mitigating factors as to why the state would uh, issue mandates to try to slow the spread is to be able to handle that influx or the possibility of that influx. So um, where are we right now with state mandates? What, what are the rules that are set in place? So the, the state mandate, um, regardless of, of transmission, the transmission index, which is the risk, there's the, the low, medium, and high, um, and all, all of our area except for Daggett County is considered in high transmission right now. Um, Daggett County is still considered low. There is a mask mandate in place. Mm-hmm. Anytime you're in public, um, in the workplace, you're supposed to be wearing a mask. Uh, if you can't, if you can't maintain the six foot foot of distance uh, that's required, and and it has to be consistent um, six foot of distance, but they they kind of rolled back originally with the first first latest order was there was some restriction on even gatherings with the size of gatherings with inside private homes. They mm-hmm. pulled that back. It's moved completely to a recommendation that, you know, having gatherings with people outside of your immediate household um, is not advisable at this time. And uh, what it's really done is it's put it, put in place uh, distancing requirements it's really put the requirements on businesses and event planners. That those that that's the focus, and the two focuses are masking and distancing. So, if you decide that you're going to hold an event, doesn't you you could potentially hold the event, but you have to take on the responsibility for ensuring that every single person at that event has a mask on, and that there's distancing between household groups. Um, so in a, in a venue that might be, you know, seating household groups together and then providing the distancing between there. Um, and then everyone in a workforce is supposed to be wearing a mask, uh, when they can't physical distance. Uh, for instance, I don't wear my mask when I'm sitting in my office, but every time I leave my office, I know I'm going to potentially run into somebody. So we wear it, um, 
And then the physical distancing, making sure there's an opportunity for physical distancing in the workplace when you can. We know that there's workplaces where that's not possible. And that's why the masking is, is an important aspect of that. And originally when, when this mandate came out, I think it was uh, early November. Um, and it was supposed to go through up until like the 23rd of November, but then got pushed a little bit further. What, what's our timeline right now? So it expires on the 8th of December. Um, I've heard that it's it's going to be extended. Uh, so they're going in increments. And and uh, I, I, I agree with the going in increments because then you're able to measure and say, do we need to do anything else? Can we let off a little bit? What do we what do we need to do? I forgot to mention that the restaurants and bars are included in this. And there's uh, if you go into a restaurant, uh, spacing of six feet, you're supposed to be wearing a mask uh, any time other than when you're eating or drinking. Um, and then bars are, I believe, at 70 percent capacity okay. and uh, supposed to be wearing a mask. Uh, what is it? Bars. I can't remember. They're supposed to maintain six foot of distance. Oh, you just—they just have to provide six feet of distance between between uh, household groups. Um, so that's the requirement in in high is there has to be that six foot of distancing available. Are there course. are there any exemptions to this for uh, schools or for children or for the disabled? Yeah. So uh, with regards to the requirement for. Um, for the masks in schools, there is the exemption, and and there are those that that if you get a medical, you can have a medical exemption uh, for a school age child. Um, that has to be provided by a doctor um, or a PA or a nurse practitioner, and and there's some guidance that's given. I can't remember all of it off the top of my head. The exemption to the the public mask order. Uh, that's for everyone uh, while actively eating or drinking alone uh, with only a member of the same household and room in a room, cubicle, vehicle, or similar enclosure when communicating with individual who is deaf or hard of hearing. So there's that. Um, while obtaining or providing services that require temporary removal of face masks, such as a dental service. So if you go into our good sponsor, Larson Haslam Dental, you can take off your face mask while they're working on your teeth. That's, that was a good plug. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Um, while sleeping, you don't have to wear it while you're sleeping, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. Unless your wife requires it to <clears throat> dampen the noise. Um, and while actively performing as an athlete at an organized athletic event, uh, while exercising or engaging in athletic training, and while swimming, while giving religious or political media educational and artistic, cultural, musical, or theatrical presentation or performance when engaging in work where wearing a face mask would create a risk to the individual as determined by the government safety guidelines. I don't even know what those are. And when necessary to confirm an individual's identity, including when entering bank, credit union, or financial institution, or when federal state law or regulations prohibit wearing a face mask. Um, and uh, if your your child is younger than three years old, you're exempt from it. And that's about it. Now it's it's there's m m this is there's no data behind this. This is just me. Um, there there seems to be an awful lot of pushback against, particularly face masks in our community. Um, so a, a couple of questions. One is. If all of these exemptions are here, and in a sporting event they don't have to wear it, in in I thought the swimming one was was rather interesting. Um, how effective are these masks really? And and a follow up question to that, which is, what grounds does the state have to try to enforce this? Do they have any legal grounds to to tell people that they have to do this? Um, let me ask, answer the first question. How effective are they? Um, so the impact of masks on, on the University of Utah just did this study and they were actually, they were economists. They were looking at the impact that, it, that mask 
mandates had on economics. And the first key point that they found was that where mask mandates were implemented, uh, COVID-19 transmission declined. And they looked at every county in the United States that implemented a mask mandate, every state that implemented one. Um, and that's what they found. The graph shows that there is a trend after the mask requirement was put in place that transmission went down. Mm-hmm. But the other amazing thing, so say that you 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 hate masks and you, you think they're a dumb idea. Um, the reality is that people, regardless, will adjust their behavior. And I've said this over and over again. People adjust their behavior based off of their own risk threshold, right? Right. Um, and what they found was that these mask mandates increased consumer confidence. Um, and they tracked it, or they were able to, to, to find this out because all of us carry around a phone, right? And so mm-hmm. they were able to see consumer mobility went up after mask mandates went, went into place in these counties. And when, when mobility went up, so did consumer spending in those areas. Right. And, uh, and so all these things are beneficial for the economy because, and when they did some of the surveying as part of their study, they found that individuals felt more comfortable if a higher percentage of the population were wearing masks and going into stores and doing, doing their part in, as far as commerce goes. Right. So even if you hate it, um, part of me says, well, love our economy enough to wear it so that everyone feels comfortable. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of a, something that's come to my mind. Well, even if you, you don't think that it does anything for you or, or for anyone else, psychologically, it does things for people. And the, the data is starting to show that for our small businesses in our community, it may make a difference. And 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 that brings it uh, up another point, um, which is y- you have data that says here's the effectiveness of it, and here's what it's um, doing, besides just the the potential health benefits to, for the economy as well. Um, and yet, I I know of plenty of other studies that say no masks aren't effective, and so when you're given multiple studies that show completely opposite things, what is, what's the best course of action for a regular Joe Schmo? It, it feels like there's a, a, a real great lack of trust in our system, particularly when it comes to the government side, that numbers, studies, information that's coming from official sources aren't as reliable as those same studies that are coming from unofficial sources, but are from accredited individuals, doctors or, or, or whatnot. Um, I don't know, I don't know what that, what question I have here other than in your position, what do you tell people? Well, I, I think it's important to, to, to realize that one study, this study right here, Mm -hmm. even it doesn't settle science, right? It's an indicator. It, It tells us that, that there's some promise there. Um, just like, I, I agree. There's some studies, the Denmark study that said masks may not be as effective as, as we really would hope they were. Mm -hmm. Um, looking at the, the study design is an important aspect of it. The, uh, the Denmark study was, was trying to prove a hypothesis that you'd see a 50% reduction in, in COVID transmission. It couldn't show that. Mm -hmm. It didn't say that there was no reduction, Sure, but that or there, there's a lot of things that the study doesn't, that studies don't say. Um, and, and what you have to look at is you have to look at the collective data that all these different studies provide and the general direction that it's pointing us. Right. And, and I would say that the general direction that the data seems to be pointing out of all the studies, um, is that, is that masks have some level of efficacy with regards to transmission of the disease. Um, the problem is that uh, we all have our own cognitive bias, right? Uh-huh. And we cherry pick the things that meet our cognitive bias. And I will be honest, I 
tried to be very aware of my own cognitive bias through this whole thing. Um, I obviously have a strong cognitive bias towards public health and, and those things. But I've also tried to look at that other data that may be counter to what my cognitive would confirm my cognitive bias and, and look at that and see what value it truthfully has. Um, and that's where we need to be moving. The problem, in my view, is, is when we get into even the, the politics and the politicization of a communicable disease, um, it leads us more and more towards this dichotomous thinking, right? Where you think this way or you think this way and there's black and white. And the reality is, Dave, is the answers to this whole thing are somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. This is a very complex thing. And so for you to be able to just sit in this camp over here and say, this is how it is and this is this is right and this side over here to do the same thing, it gets us nowhere. Right. It doesn't get us closer to the answer of how do we how do we have honest conversations about the risk benefit ratio because there's all sorts of risk benefits right let's just throw out schools for instance how do we continue to keep schools open without having it impact transmission on a crazy level right, right. that's trying to figure out the risk benefit there's so many risks to having our kids out of school mm -hmm. long-term. I'm not just talking short-term. I'm talking long-term. How many, how many years behind will online schooling put that kid right. compared to the kids that come up behind them that didn't have as much online schooling or whatever? It just, and it creates a bigger gap between the haves and the haves not, right? The kid that, that doesn't have, uh, I, we, we know each other, so it doesn't have a mom like your kids have that's going to make sure that they're doing their work, right? Right. And and there versus the kid that mom has to go to work in order to make ends meet and so doesn't have that support. That just puts that kid further behind. And that's those are some of the risks that we have to look at. So my, my argument's been if a mask gets us there, send send every kid to school in a mask. Mm -hmm. And I, I know I've been hated for saying that, but... I think the risk for for the potential for us to have to look at a school closure is far worse than sending a kid every kid to school in a mask. Right. So having being able to have the honest conversation and and I might be wrong, but being able to have the honest conversation about what risks are we willing to take and what are the benefits and how do we get there um, rather than just saying this is right, this is wrong. And because you believe this or think this way, you're you're a horrible person. And wrong on everything. Yeah. Or because you think this way, you're a horrible person. Um, the one thing that COVID has taught me is that that nobody's trying to be a horrible person through this thing. Um, the person at the store without a mask is not trying to be a horrible person. Um, the person with the mask is not... Uh, a fear monger, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we got to take away some of these, some of these, uh, categories that we put people in. You don't have to pick a side. Yeah. I, I think we just need to have more open dialogue with regards to it. I think the trust, the distrust comes because of the automatic label that's placed on, on somebody. Um, I've had quite a few labels placed on me and very few of them are true. Um, but, and, and I think those are the, the things that, that tear us down, right? Because in putting that label on them, they assume some level of intent and they've yeah. never even had a conversation with me or with anyone else. Yeah. So I think those things are just destructive to, to the fabric of society, which is we're all trying to do as best we can. I would agree with that. I think that, I think that, uh, total opinion here, I think most people, the, the far majority of people are just trying to do what they think is best for themselves and others. Yeah. They're not destructive. Um, I'm, oh, hey, the, my clock came back up. Okay, so we're just almost out of time. But um, I we've got to get to vaccines because yeah. that's that's the next, that's, 
that's what's going to save us all, right? We yeah. think, depending on which side you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you're never going to take the vaccine. Maybe it's all controlled by the government. Who knows? So you tell me uh, what's happening with vaccines and how is it going to affect um, our Tri-County area? Um, I'm really hopeful for a vaccine. Um, I think I think the Trump administration has done a great thing in fast-tracking this thing. The fact that we're able to be looking at a vaccine coming to our state mid-December. Unheard of. Just is crazy. With with the high level of efficacy that the granted small, smaller than usual studies are are showing, but the, the safety indicators and everything like that are are very, very promising. Uh, so with regards to vaccine, that that's what's gonna get us out of this thing, in my view. You're gonna be able to to stop or slow the transmission level. The most important part is that that high-risk category, right? Being able to protect that high-risk category is going to mean all the difference in the world because there are a lot of people that are going to be just fine after they get COVID. Um, but trying to protect that category, and the only way that we can do that is with a vaccine. And so there, um, as soon as approvals are given by the FDA, um, the, the two promising ones that we'll, we'll see the quickest are both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, both of them showing a lot of promise. Uh, the Pfizer one is, is on a little bit faster track, and that's the one that, if you've read the news, that's the one that we'll start seeing in the state, potentially in December, to get to healthcare workers. After that, you're looking at healthcare workers that are in long-term care facilities, long-term care facility residents, and with that, there'll be, in my view, a big sigh of relief because some of them where we're seeing the greatest mortality, that's where mm-hmm. where we'll be able to see that a lot of that relief come from. And then, and can you imagine for those people in the long-term care facilities that haven't seen their loved ones for a long time, how great that's going to be for them yeah. um, on both sides. And so that's going to be an important aspect. And then our first responders will also be put in there. Um, teachers I know in our state have been prioritized fairly high. And so we're working on developing the prioritization of it. And I'm hopeful that these manufacturers of these vaccines will overrun us to a point where our next concern isn't our capacity in the hospitals. It's it's how our capacity to be able to get this to everyone who's, who wants it, um, the governor yesterday said it's not going to be mandated. So all those people out there that that are concerned about that, it won't be mandated. Um, but at that point, it once you have a vaccine, it does get to the point where people have said, let me choose for myself. Well, with a communicable disease, you don't get to choose who you transmit it to necessarily. Right. But with a vaccine available, then the choice becomes more real, right, for individuals, whether they want to. As long as a, a high enough percentage of the population does take the vaccine, yeah. then there's enough room for those who don't want to that it's basically okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you're not going to see the overrunning of the, the healthcare system if you have a high popu- high percentage of the population take it, right? Right. So those the vaccine is, is where it's at, and in my view, obviously I'm a director of a health department, so I'm very pro-vaccine. Um, and, and this, it's, what's going to get us out of this thing. And do you know what the timeline is as far as I I know that there's a very limited amount that will be um, immediately going out? How long before we get to the point that maybe those long-term, uh, healthcare residents have access to it? I'm hopeful in our area that it's going to be early 2021. So that's what we're planning for is, is looking at 2021. I'm hopeful in January, we'll be able to to be getting into those facilities and have them vaccinated. So, And without getting too into the woods, because you might not have the answer, I know that at least the Pfizer um, vaccine is is requiring a special uh, freezing units because it requires it to be at such a, a, a low temperature uh, in storage. Do you know whether or not uh, our local hospitals have geared up um, or, or are gearing up for the equipment to be able to handle uh, storage of the vaccine? So n- not that vaccine, but... Believe it or not, I was on the radio the other day, and I said, we don't have that storage capacity here. And USU called me, and they said, we have two ultra-cold freezers at USU. So this week, we're going over to look at them and determine whether oh, nice. or not it can be utilized um, for for that, because that 
ups that time frame. If we can get the Pfizer one, which is a first approved mm-hmm. here, then that ups the ups the benefit to our community. So we're going to go be, meet with USU and see if that's a, even a possibility and kind of look at that. But if not, then, then the Moderna vaccine is probably our next best bet, and hopefully we'll be seeing that in January. So we'll see. All right. Lots of things to still figure out. Well, we, we could do a whole other hour if you if you wanted to sit here for a whole other hour, but our, our, our time uh, is definitely up. Thank you very much, Jordan Mathis, uh, for taking the time to come here and, and to talk to us. Um, I think uh, just personally, the, the, the greatest thing that I've taken from this is is the idea that I that um, we as a people here in the Tri-County area could probably take that advice of not picking a side and recognizing that we all have each other's best interests at heart ultimately we may not always agree but we'll we'll make a lot more progress by communicating than we will by just picking a side and pointing fingers at the other side uh so thank you for 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 bringing your information uh and for the work that you do and of course thank uh you all i'm not sure which camera is on here uh for listening to the to the channel v6 podcast make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at channelv6.com. Thank you once again, and uh, have a great day, everybody. Thanks.